Thank you for joining us on IAB There. And now your host, Brad Behrens. Over to you, Brad. Hi there, everybody. Uh, I'm Brad Behrens. I'm the Editor-in-Chief here at the Interactive Advertising Bureau. Welcome to IAB There, our daily live stream where we try to connect uh, the digital media industry. Um, today's topic is leadership during the coronavirus crisis and beyond. Uh, I'm, I'm really thrilled that our guest today is Rashad Tabakawala. Rashad was a member of the leadership at Publicis Group for many, many years. Uh, most recently when he was there, the chief growth officer. He is uh, a profound thinker uh, about business and leadership. And he's also the author of an exciting new book, uh, which is right here. Uh, restoring the soul of business, staying human in the age of data. Um, before I go on, let me say that we will be open for questions and the way to pose your questions is on Twitter. So if you have something to ask Rashad um, or me, uh, although I think the latter is unlikely, uh, the hashtag is IABthere, all caps, one word, uh, and our producers will be monitoring Twitter and hoping that you'll ask them questions. I'm new to my role at IAB. I think this is my fifth week. And as I was uh, starting the process of coming on board, I was also reading Rashad's book and found it to be an extraordinary resource uh, of insight to help me as I was thinking about my new job, my new team, uh, how to uh, profitably uh, and positively insert myself into the process. So having just used it myself, I can recommend it to everyone. Um, so uh, one thing that uh, stuck with me is a passage where Rashad talks about Netflix. And he says that in Netflix, they have an extraordinary amount of trust for their team and they really focus on outcomes rather than process. And I found myself saying in meetings, that you know, process is subordinate to the goal, which I think is a less eloquent version uh, of how Rashad was putting it. So um, I'm thrilled to have him here. Let's bring him onto the screen now. Uh, please, we're gonna welcome Rashad. While we're waiting for that transition, once again, our, uh, our Twitter hashtag is all caps IAB there. We will be monitoring Twitter um, while, uh, and hoping for some questions. Rashad, thank you so much for joining us. Welcome to IAB there. Thank you very much. Glad to be here, Brad. So uh, I was just showed people the beautiful cover of your book. Ta-da! Also, I want to point out uh, how well thumbed mine is with lots of post-its and, and vigorous outlines. For those people who have not been lucky enough to read it so far, um, I, I, what's sort of the tweetable version of the book? There were two phrases that I marked out and wrote down this morning as I was reviewing it uh, again. Uh, one was, uh, well, the subtitle of the book is Staying Human in the Age of Data, and the two passages that I marked out, one was, we are confusing numbers with facts, data with insights, and computation with decisions. And the other was, the spreadsheet is the scoreboard and not the ball or the player. So for the Tabakawala impaired, what's the short version of, of the thesis of the book? Why did you write it? What change do you want it to make in the world? So the reason I wrote it and the reason someone would hopefully want to read it is to help you think, see, and feel differently about how to grow your company, your team, and yourself. And that's primarily because over the last five to seven years, 
we have basically tended towards the spreadsheet, which is the data, the math, and the economics of a business, and have paid short shrift to what I call the story, which is the culture, the emotion, and the values and purpose of business. And the book basically states and shows that businesses that combine the story and the spreadsheet, that understand that the scoreboard is important, but as important is the ball and the people who are watching the game. Those are the companies that win in every sense of the word. Not only are they well-respected, not only are they companies that have very low turnover rates, but not surprisingly, they are the companies with the highest stock price appreciation. So when people have often told me that the math runs the business, my belief is if the math runs the business, you eventually end up with United Airlines or Wells Fargo. If the story runs the business, you end up with WeWork. If you, however, combine the spreadsheet and the story and the math and the meaning, you have companies like Southwest versus United Airlines. You have companies like Adobe. And you start looking at the most successful companies and they combine the two. And one of the reasons Microsoft didn't do so well for a decade is they went all into stack ranking and math. Then came Satya Nadella and basically gave everybody a book growth mindset, decided mm -hmm. to focus, and there you are. It's stock price went up four times. So it's only poor leaders who basically say they use math to run the business. And I think that just, I really think it's worth hammering this one home, which is I think so much of the time when people talk about the, the themes that you address in the book, that it, it gets sort of pushed off into an HR function. You know, we want people to be happy, you know, oh, that's good for retention. But we've seen, we've seen solid research, for example, that, uh, you know, cognitive diversity, other you know, racial diversity, basically any kind of diversity in an organization is ultimately good for the bottom line because it prevents certain forms of groupthink. And so I think that I just, again, want to, to, really, to really emphasize that you're talking about uh, all different kinds of success, um, including yes. stock price, which is a, a unusual for, I think, a book with your theme. Yes, so it, all, the, all, the, all the stuff that all the math people care a lot about. So my book is very popular with CEOs and with CFOs. Oh, really? They, yes, and their basic belief is that we've always wanted to do things like this. And you have pointed out a how to do it, but more importantly, doing it makes economic sense, which, right. is, which is what's important. And the reason why this has to be very key, and the book really is about the focus on people, is I believe that there are only two ways to transform a company. So everyone talks about, I wanna transform my group, I wanna transform my team, I wanna transform my company. Um, as someone who's kind of been doing some of this for like 20 years out of my 38 year career, I will tell you the little secret, only two ways. Yes, how you do it. You either upgrade your people or you upgrade their mindsets. Everything else mm -hmm. is a press release. Everything else is a press release, right? So the only acquisitions that actually work is when you bring in skill sets that you don't have. But most acquisitions don't. So everything, when you hear a CEO, a CFO say things, just look at this lens. Is it improving the quality of the people or is it improving the diversity and bringing in new skill sets? If not, it 
it's not worth it. Uh, that is very bold uh, and, uh, and also um, uh, compelling. So here's the top question on my mind, uh, because uh, you, know, you were just mentioning you had a you know, 37 year career at Publicist. Um, you are, this book came out, I think in February uh, or January. Yeah, 28th. January. Uh, and, uh, and between the time that you wrote the book uh, and or when the book came out and now, we have the largest disruption to our society in over a hundred years. Uh, arguably, I mean, the, mo the most recent, the most similar recent one was 1918 with this, the so-called Spanish flu. So uh, if you could go back, right? If you had a time machine and you could say, you know, or if, we're, if we were to hope that there would be a paperback edition coming out in a month and you could go create a new introduction based on everything that's happening with coronavirus, the unbelievable changes that are happening, what would you say? Like, how would you reframe the argument of the book for our current crisis? So I would say what a lot of people have told me who have, been, who have read the book recently, which is, did you know this was happening? Did you, knew, did you know such a thing would happen? So to give you an idea, six of the 12 chapters have been written specifically for our current era. There is a chapter on how you manage cultures in an age of screens when you're a distributed workforce. There is a chapter on how do you lead with soul when times get tough. So what I would do in the introduction is I would separate the book into two halves. As you know, the book, you can read any chapter in any order. So what what connects them is, I call it a Spotify playlist. So it's not a book of essays. It's connected by a theme and the theme is this combining the story and the spreadsheet. But I would basically break it up into chapters that are extremely relevant post COVID-19 and chapters that are relevant. But there are some chapters that are much more relevant today than they've ever been. So in fact, that's the most unusual thing, which is when I was asked, what does a leader look like? in today's environment. I just pick out the five themes of leadership, which is the 12th chapter of my book is called Leading with Soul. And here are the five words. And I'm gonna put these just five words out and then compare these five words with any two leaders that you know, a leader that isn't doing a very good job or a leader who is doing a good job and see how they stack up. So the first word is capability because I truly believe that you can't be a leader unless you're capable and you know what you're doing which is sort of a left brain thing, but it's important. The other four are emotional words, but these are the words. Integrity, can you actually believe what they say? Do they speak the truth? Do they speak facts and science? Next is empathy. Do they understand what we're all going through? Like for instance, this is not working from home. What we're doing is not working from home. Working from home is a choice. This is where working, where we're forced to work from home, with often kids who shouldn't be at home, they should be at school, worried about the future of your job, highly impacted by your financial constraints and worried about buying toilet paper. That's not working for home. What is it? That, that basically is working under duress in significantly challenged times where every part of your life, financial, economic, and personal is challenged. Very, very different. So empathy, vulnerability, to sort of recognize what is basically going on, uh, to, to basically say that you too 
aren't sure exactly what is happening. And the last and fifth one is inspiration, which is you got to leave people thinking positive and that there is both a light at the end of the tunnel. And Queen Elizabeth yesterday spoke. And, and it was a five-minute talk, and she was capable. She ended with inspiration. We will meet again. She was very realistic. And there it was. Compare her with some other leaders who I shall not blame, right? And so what you basically begin to happen is leadership. What I've always believed is what was true about this book has just accelerated and become more refined. Because in effect, the book simply says, we should not forget this, which now we are all remembering. Yes, we are living in a silicon data-driven digital world, but we're analog carbon-based feeling people who like connecting. And when you take away that, or you don't speak to that, you have challenges. If you speak to it, you have a few less challenges. And so in effect, that's what I would do. I would basically say, these six chapters were written primarily for post February, 2020. And these mm -hmm. chapters were written before. And interestingly, the chapters that were written before are the chapters that people in business today or till January, 2020 were very fixated about. There's a chapter on how you handle data. It's called right. too much math, too little meaning, right? Even the chapter wasn't about data. It was too much math, too little meaning which is interesting. There was another one, which is the importance of art in business. Uh, that one was very, uh, right. Felt, but it's a little bit less, it's a little bit less relevant today, but chapters like how to lead with soul, managing cultures and distributed workforces, how to have good meetings, how to use time when it's given to you. Right. And then the opening of the book has a very simple line in my introduction. The first words I write in the book is time is the only thing we have. I think that's become very clear to everybody. So in effect, I would just basically write it, which is optimized for COVID-19. Well, I, I, I hope we'll see that in the uh, in the, the paper, the next edition, whenever that may be. Uh, you, you kind of start just, you talked about this a bit, but I, I do want to, to, to dig in on uh, on the data question, not the, the sort of organization or enterprise-wide data, but more about we're leaving, we're living our lives on these, on screens, like what you and I are doing right now. Uh, I'm on uh, basically countless uh, conference calls and video conferences a day. Uh, it really beggars the imagination if you stop to think about how much Zoom now knows about us, um, Zoom and BlueJeans and WebEx and all of these video conferences. Does it give you any pause uh, or do you have any, anything to, to, to any best practices as we're moving? Well, the other thing I think is interesting is we're really moving away from an environment where multitasking is, is as easy as it used to be, you know, because, you know, you're constantly looking at a, a wall full of faces. Uh, and if you, if you turn off the camera or whatever, then you're, you're sort of giving yourself away. Well, what is the, what's the difference now with, as we're, in this environment versus sort of in offices, et cetera? So there, there is one difference, which is when you put the video on, on any of these platforms, it is as close as possible to what I have encouraged in one of my chapters called Have More Meetings. So there's a chapter called Have More Meetings and people thought like I was like, I drunk too much, right? 
And my basic belief is I always have a meeting with anybody who wants to have a meeting, but I want that to be an in-person meeting, right? And I go to meetings where I believe I can add value, not where I can extract value. And which is the exact opposite of what people have said. People have said, don't go to meetings, minimize the number of meetings and only go where you can extract value. Those are meetings that are doomed. Most times when we had meetings at work, they were not meetings. We were clustering around the modern fireplace, basically called a screen. And we were all looking at Excel spreadsheets and PowerPoint. While we weren't actually looking there, we were basically looking at our screens, our other personal screens, and doing other work, as you say, like multitasking. What I recommend there is look at people's face and put all the technology away. Now, in this particular case, we're not putting the technology away, but we're looking at people's face. And when you do that, you actually can have a conversation because 90% of what we communicate is through glances, where we look, what we say, tone of voice, all of which we basically miss without voice and face. So oddly, this has proved the importance of meetings, but I also believe that there's the importance of human connection. And to a certain extent, we are trying to replicate that, and which is one of the reasons why, whether it's like virtual you know, cocktail hours or whatever what we're doing. On, on the data question and how much data is basically being collected, you know, to me, data is neither good nor bad, but it's how we use it. And mm. the, the key question really is, in some particular cases, countries are utilizing data like they have in South Korea and other places to make sure that people stay quarantined and don't disappear, right? And is that a good use of data? It probably is. If that then is used to like follow me wherever I go, probably not. Because the same piece of data, by the way, in South Korea, this is a true story, that mm -hmm. allowed them to basically find people who were going out and find when they find, they find them with tens of thousands of dollars. I mean, really fines, right? But the same data basically sort of revealed to a wife that her husband was cheating. Oh dear. Okay, yeah. because of where the, the data was going. So what tends to basically happen is it's, it depends on who's measuring it and what it is. So it's not neither good nor bad. But to a great extent, what I would basically say is, you know, people are sensitive to it. So if you think about Zoom, the company, uh, in the last four days, its stock price has declined by 25%, right. right? Because it's got some privacy leakages and other kinds of things, and they realize it's a problem. I think privacy is going to become actually more important rather than less important because when we live more and more of our lives on screens or in this particular multimedia world, we're going to basically care a lot. And my basic belief is when someone says is privacy important, I use a line from uh, Greenwald, the author and the uh, journalist, you know, who basically, Jerry Greenwald, I believe. And he, he said something, uh, uh, Glenn Greenwald, what he basically said is, um, we are only ourselves when we are by ourselves, hmm. okay? So if, for instance, if you knew that your Zoom camera was on in your home all the time and people could monitor you, you would behave differently. You would stop being you. And those right. are- We see this in reality television, you know, where, yes. where people are living in exactly. these environments. Exactly, so, so it's a, the, the answer to the question is, it depends on how and who it's used by, but the reality also is that there's going to be more and more data place. But at the same stage, as what I do not have in my book is a concept that I've come up with when every company says they're going to separate themselves with data. Mm. I basically tell them that they should rethink their thoughts for the very simple reason, which is 
there are a few companies like an Amazon, like a Google, you know, like a Facebook, et cetera, that differentiate themselves for the use of data. But most marketers, most business companies don't. Data is critical. It's extremely important. And I have an advanced degree in math. I know a lot about data. I think it's really critical. I believe data is like electricity. You can't run businesses without it. But tell me which business differentiates itself on the use of electricity. That's what most people are missing, right? We're in the age of going from no electricity to electricity, which is why we're fixating so much on electricity. But electricity will not be a differentiator. Uh, we have a question. So let me go to the question that, that uh, I will, uh, I, I need to uh, start sending you a dollar every time I, I, I steal that comment about electricity. Uh, this is a question from Sheila Jones. She asked, the business story culture, emotion, purpose, and values is getting short shrift because of data spreadsheet obsession. Uh, I don't think that's a question. I think that's mostly something that's validating what you were saying. Um, so it, thank you, Sheila. It, it, it is getting, which is the reason I wrote the book, because over the last five to seven years, we have tilted so much towards it, towards the left brain versus the right brain. So I wanted to basically build build a, a bring a book together for both teams, CEOs and CFOs that explain by doing so, you actually hurt your business. You did not help your business. And it's a very rational argument. So this is literally, this is a fact-driven business person's argument uh, as to why when you actually combine them. See, a lot of people basically choose one over the other. I don't believe you can. What I believe is that any given circumstance, you have to select the mix. So in some particular cases, like today, I think you have to make a lot of decisions less numerical. It's probably 70% human and 30% you know, economic. In fact, to a certain extent, what we're doing as a society all over the world is we're doing 95% human, 5% economic. Right, because, because we have no base. We're destroying the economy in the short term in order to keep people alive, right? Yeah. So it's, it's basically always a mix. And what I find really hard is when I come across leaders who either just use a number to justify their decision-making, especially in the world of marketing, because my basic belief is very simply this. If you only believed in numbers, you should not be in marketing. You should not, because no brand was ever built by numbers, ever, ever, right? Because people choose with their hearts, they use numbers to justify what they just did. 95% of your decisions today will not be numerical. You'll use numbers to justify what you just did. And so in effect, and the other is if you only make your decisions using your numbers, not only will you be a failure, but you will, before you become a failure, you will be unemployed, right? I've, as I tell people, I know math, it's scary how much math I know. I run away from math as fast as I can because the machines can do it better. I don't want to compete with a machine. I want to work with the machine. And what do I do that a machine doesn't do? It's the other stuff. So concretely, I also think that right now at this particular moment, uh, because everything is changing, uh, that means that most of the numbers no longer matter. You know, we, how can we base questions about anything, about when to advertise, about you know what to buy, when to buy, when we don't have any uh, solid sense of what people's behavior is anymore, which I think, so in this moment, we're, we're really looking at, as you were saying, inflecting much more towards the human, uh, 
I don't like talking about people's guts because I think that always is an excuse for, you know, not thinking things through uh, as opposed to listening to your intuition and then really interrogating it. Um, so so there, the, 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 the context of what you're saying, I think is powerful because so much is changing. Um, we're, we're, I, I, of course we could speak for hours, but I, I do want, I don't want to leave uh, this conversation without asking uh, about the turd on the table which is one of your, uh, it's a uh, chapter in the book, it's a, one of your catchphrases. What is the turn on the table? And, and again, I think particularly at this moment where our tables are virtual, um, what do you do about a virtual turd? So if sure. I may, what- So the, 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 the turn on the table, which is the favorite chapter in my book of a long-term boss of mine, Jack Lewis, right? Uh, is basically a true story where there was a CEO of a company, in this case, it was Shantan Narayan of Adobe about 10, 12 years ago. And we were talking about a meeting about working together and they had just bought an agency. And so I basically said, hey, listen, before we talk about that, I want to address the turn on the table. So the concept with the turn on the table is we often sit around in meetings and we find something brown and moist in the middle of the table. It's often not a brownie, it's a piece of shit, but we won't actually address it, right? And when you don't address it, you have problems like Boeing. It was very clear as soon as I found the Boeing problem, I knew that it must have been festering there for two years. You can't have such a huge issue without people speaking up. And that was basically happening. So the turn on the table really is, how do you speak truth to power? Because if you don't have an environment and a culture where people speak truth to power, you have a real problem. When companies talk about innovation, but they make people scared, how does that happen? It's one of the reasons why I truly believe while diversity is important and critical, it's also very important that everybody has a voice. So as I've written, diverse faces are not the same as diverse voices. And one of the key things which is the turn on the table today to your particular point is the following, which is at its very heart, everything we're gonna be doing is gonna be human. So there are three key emotions that almost every human around the world is facing. They're basically looking, they're anxious, they're fearful, and they're uncertain, right? Because they're uncertain because they don't know where it's gonna end. They're fearful for their own health. They're fearful for their job. And they're anxious because it's a time of great anxiety. So coming out of this, I'm basically, I'm just writing a piece which will be done by this evening. Uh, so I call this entire theme on the inspirational side, I basically call this the great reinvention. So I remember there was a great recession. I believe this is the great reinvention. And I'm, I'm writing a series of topics on it. And one of them, first was just the great reinvention, why this is the great reinvention. The second is I'm going step by steps. The, the key one is fragility. What this has basically shown us is how fragile we are, how we are fragile as human beings, how our companies are fragile, how our governments are fragile. And you know, I've always told people this, which is we don't realize it, but every one of us is going to die and we're gonna get sick. So I don't understand why we don't fund healthcare. We are now going to fund healthcare. You can be absolutely certain that people are gonna fund healthcare. A second reason is there's something very odd in our business. So for instance, here's the fragility. Today, 15 to 16% of the people in the United States are immigrants. 29% of the people who are out there today who are actually working are immigrants. So one of the other part, because immigrants usually come in through labor. They aren't right. like you get educated immediately, right? But they come in through labor. So to a great extent, there's gonna be another big shift, which is we're gonna to have to really think about labor. Why are the people who are actually doing these amazing stuff, which we barely pay, worth, you know, CBS Wirecom's CEO, outgoing CEO got $125 million. 
think about that. That's basically 125,000, it's 12,000 nurses. Right. Okay. And these are realities that are going to basically happen. We're going to find ourselves, we're going to look at fragility of our organizations, fragility of our leadership, and we're going to have to heal them. And so I, I truly believe that there's that. And then the concept of the scale of this is the other one, which is a lot of people say, well, you know, people came back from 9-11, not a big deal, et cetera. Here's why this is different. And, and I'm not saying it, it, we won't come out better. We might come out better. But the reason this is different is think about this. Number one, it's happening to everybody in the world. It's happening all at the same time. And it's yes. happening for 60 to 90 days. At if least. you read all the books on psychology, if you start or stop a habit for 60 days, it becomes a habit, uh, which, is, which is kind of interesting. So this, this is a complete new, new world. We're going to reinvent society and business as we know it, and I, hopefully for the better. Uh, I think the, uh, that leads me to my final question, which is that's a remarkably optimistic way uh, of thinking about it. So um, the question I love to answer, to end with, is what are you doing to stay connected and to stay optimistic during this time. I know you have uh, two daughters. Um, I always talk about how you got to call the people who are living alone because the people who are living alone are the ones who are probably impacted the most by this. After that, it's the people with you know, children under the age of four. What are you, Rashad, what are you doing to, to stay connected and optimistic during this time? So, you know, the first and most important thing is uh, there's a sense of gratitude, which is in effect, when I look at all the amazing people doing amazing things out there, uh, under major duress of jobs and income and all of those things that at the current time I do not face, it's pretty remarkable how people continue to operate. So one is there's a sense of gratitude and that then basically says, how can I help other people? Now, one of the things that we do do, and that's one of the things we're grappling with is I run a foundation in India, which helps 10,000 people. India is under a complete lockdown uh, yeah. and they didn't think about what it meant, right? Like for instance, in India, when people say stay at home, there are 90 million families who live in one room. Yeah. One room. How do you deal with that? So those are some of the things that I'm sort of dealing with with our foundation because oddly the people that we help don't have much of the internet, but they have something called the mobile phone. So one of the things is a big part of it is there is something absolutely amazing about the sound of a human voice versus a text. And one of the big things we're doing is we're talking to people. So we're basically having people connect with people, mm. right, over phone. So we're not texting them. We're not sending them YouTube videos. That's, we'll send them that. But it's the human voice is so, so important. Uh, and that is one of the things that we're trying to do, you know, in my other life, which is the foundation I run. Rashad, uh, thank you so much for joining us here on IAB There. Let me just show the book one more time. Uh, don't miss this one uh, if, you re if you are uh, out there and you haven't read it yet. Uh, buy two copies, read one, give one to a friend. Uh, Rashad Tabakawala, I hope we'll have you back on IAB There sometime soon. Thank you, Brad, for having me and congratulations on your new job. Thank you, sir. Let me do the credits, please. Um, tomorrow, on tomorrow's show, our CEO, Randall Rothenberg, will sit down with the Xander interim CEO, Kirk McDonald, who's also their chief brand officer, talking about advanced advertising uh, during, uh, in general, but also during these turbulent times. IAB There is a production of the Interactive Advertising Bureau. Our show's producers today 
are Connor Healy, Joe Ons, John Ward, Twifika Mahinadin, and Haley Bloom. My name is Brad Behrens. I'm the editor-in-chief here at the IAB. Thank you for watching. Please join us tomorrow for Randall and Kirk, because if it's 2 p.m. Eastern on a weekday, you know it's time to IAB there. Thanks, everybody.